they have a reason to embrace women's suffrage um, because of their experiences as workers and organizers. Hello and welcome to Labor History Today. I'm Mel Smith. Women's History Month is celebrated in March in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia, corresponding with International Women's Day on March 8th. On this week's show, we bring you The Radicalism of Irish American Women, the fourth episode of the Ballot Blocked podcast. This episode is focused on the role of Irish American women in the suffrage movement. Many of these women were already veteran organizers. They had led strikes and fought for labor unions in cities across the country. They'd also campaigned for land reform in Ireland and for Irish independence. You'll hear from Dr. Terry McCarthy on today's show. Dr. McCarthy is a professor of history at Central Michigan University and is the author of Respectability and Reform, Irish American Women's Activism from 1880 to 1920. In the conversation, Dr. McCarthy reflects on the activist history of Irish American women and how this set them apart from many other suffragists. First, though, let's hear from Judy Ansel at the Heartland Labor Forum radio show, who tells us about Sarah Lloyd Green, suffragette, feminist, and fiery labor organizer, whose story, like so many women's, has been all but forgotten. Here's Judy. This is Judy Ansel with the Heartland Labor Forum for Women's History Month on KKFI. I recently discovered Sarah Lloyd Green, a woman labor leader almost lost to history, but saved by an MU grad student named Jeff Stilley, who's writing a book about her. Sarah Lloyd Green was the daughter of a Welsh coal miner and a feminist mother. As a teenager, she moved to Kansas City with her family in 1903. Kansas City, just before World War I, was full of socialists and trade unionists and, of course, suffragists. There was a branch of the Women's Trade Union League, or WTUL, made up of upper-class women and working girls. Green caught the union bug when the League tried to organize her sister, a telephone operator. Green was a waitress working for tips. She organized the Kansas City Waitress Union and became its president and business agent. Soon, she was also the president of the local chapter of the WTUL. The League set up classes for working women, teaching them how to read, labor history, and how to organize. And organize they did. And then they had to strike to get the bosses to take them seriously. Green helped black and white women canners negotiate during a meatpacking strike in 1917. And in 1918, during World War I, and even though unions had taken a no-strike pledge, Green supported a strike of 1,800 women laundry workers. Laundries in those days were literal sweatshops, dangerous and racist. Green called for racial unity, and at a hearing at the Muehlbach, she got white strikers to walk out when black strikers were refused entry. But the bosses didn't give in, so KC Labor declared a general strike in support of the laundry workers. Green was in the thick of it, as 20,000 workers walked out and the city shut down for a week. That's all we have time for. We'll have more on Sarah Lloyd Green with researcher Jeff Stilley in the future on the Heartland Labor Forum, Thursdays at 6 p.m., right here on KKFI. Hello and welcome to Ballot Blocked, a history of women's fight to access the vote. 
I'm Eleanor Mahoney. In this series, we talk to historians and scholars to learn about women's path to the ballot. From the period of the Civil War, through the women's suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, and the 2020 election. It's a story of courage and perseverance, of disappointments and hard-won victories. Some of the people you will hear about are well-known. Their names on monuments and memorials. Others may have received less recognition, but their achievements are no less impressive. The history of women's voting rights isn't a progressive or linear narrative. Passing legislation is only one step along the way to the ballot box. The laws have to be enforced, and that takes more organizing and more struggle. New barriers to voting access are still being created today. 100 years after the 19th Amendment barred states from denying the vote based on sex, the fight for social, economic, and political equality continues. Ballot Blocked explores how we got here and asks where we might be going next when it comes to voting rights. In this episode, we focus on the role of Irish-American women in the suffrage movement. Many of these women were already veteran organizers. They had led strikes and fought for labor unions in cities across the country. They'd also campaigned for land reform in Ireland and for Irish independence. To learn more about how these experiences affected their views on women's suffrage, I spoke with Dr. Tara McCarthy. Dr. McCarthy is a professor of history at Central Michigan University and is the author of Respectability and Reform, Irish-American Women's Activism, 1880-1920. I asked Dr. McCarthy to tell me about the activist history of Irish-American women and how this set them apart from many other suffragists. The timeline of the way things worked for Irish-American women is that they really got involved in the labor movement or the nationalist movement first. And so it's not a traditional suffrage story, whereas, you know, usually when we teach women's history, we start with Seneca Falls and the women's rights and then how that sort of moves into a suffrage um, movement. And, of course, Irish-American women really aren't part of that story, so hadn't, hadn't been part of it. And so, you know, when I was really sort of looking for Irish-American women's activism, um, I started, you know, really with the labor movement and the nationalist movement. Um, but then you start seeing that some of the earliest suffrage converts really are coming out of the labor movement. So they have a reason to embrace women's suffrage um, because of their experiences as workers and organizers. The suffrage movement in America began to adopt more confrontational tactics around 1910. Leaders like Alice Paul and Lucy Burns traveled to England and saw that picketing and mass demonstrations for women's suffrage there were effective at moving public opinion. Bringing those tactics to the U.S. marked a major shift in strategy for most suffragists, who were largely middle and upper class. But for many Irish-American women, these tactics were nothing new. As leaders in the labor movement, they already had experience with radical politics. Union organizing in industrial America was almost always violent and contentious, and demanded bold action. This exposure to the everyday struggles of working-class women on and off the job gave many Irish-American women a new militancy in their approach to social movements, including the campaign for women's suffrage. I think one of the things is that for Irish-American women, they were sort of obvious militants. And what I mean by that is when the American suffrage movement starts to embrace, not embrace, maybe that's too strong of a word, but starts to experiment with militancy, 
Um, of course, that happens later than the British movement. So we think of the British movement as, as militant and the American movement is really much more uh, conservative, if that's a, an appropriate word. Um, but for Irish American women, they kind of were more obvious in sort of being able to um, really navigate sort of, you know, uh, you know, working class neighborhoods and things like that. And just to and they seem to embrace the idea that it's, it's OK to be loud. It's OK to be assertive. And so they really bring that. And so some of the, I think, kind of fun stories about militants come out of this idea. There was a woman by the name of Margaret Foley, um, and she was from Boston. And so she was this, you know, working class, you know, Irish Catholic. And when the Massachusetts Suffrage Association was looking for someone to send to England to train in militancy, they chose her and then another woman. And they basically sort of went over there and kind of studied militant tactics and brought them back to the U.S., and so her job was essentially to go and heckle um, local politicians in Boston. So she would go to these other Irish American politicians, right? And she would go and she would sort of heckle at them um, and try to get them to engage with her about suffrage. And that was basically her job was to disrupt rallies and to um, uh, to try and get uh, you know politicians to change their stance on suffrage. And so she, you know, had to, I think, kind of embrace a certain level of assertiveness because that was her job. Many Irish American women maintained close ties to family in Ireland. They remained engaged in Irish politics, including the fight for Irish independence. In the 1880s and 1890s, the Irish Land League became a prominent cause. It tried to help poor tenant farmers and abolish the landlord system. Irish-American women organized on behalf of the League in the United States, raising money and speaking out publicly in favor of land reform. Well, there are actually three waves of Irish nationalism. Um, the first one started with the Land League, so that's the 19th century. And the Land League really, it started in Ireland. It was an Irish movement um, to reform um, basically policies towards tenant farmers, to give tenant farmers some rights um, on the lands that they were farming. And so the, the Land League was really a male movement. But what happened in Ireland was that they knew that the leaders would be arrested and put in jail. And so they intentionally started a ladies Land League to take over the work when the men were put in prison. And so in Ireland, you had women leading rallies and, you know, raising funds and providing help for tenants. Um, and you had a few American women who actually went over and helped with that. But the American version of the Land League was more educational and fundraising. And they were learning not only about, you know, what's going on in Ireland, but about, you know, land theories and um, ideas about private property and, um, and, and also starting to do some of the kind of political activism and fundraising that they really hadn't done before. Um, the other thing that Land League did was embrace um, some of the more cultural aspects, like learning the Irish language and teaching Irish history. And so both in America and in Ireland, it was a way for, you know, the Irish to preserve their cultural heritage and to educate the next generation. The later decades of the 19th century saw a rise in anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic sentiment in the United States. In response, many Catholic women, including Irish Americans, began to rethink the importance of voting, seeing it as a way to assert social and political power. Yeah, there's Again, I think kind of a couple important trends. One is just nativism in general. You know, it rises in certain time periods. And one of them is the late 19th century. 
so that particularly 1880s and 1890s, the end of the 19th century, you have a pretty, pretty strong anti-Catholic backlash. Um, and so for Catholics who are already in this country, you know, the suffrage becomes an issue um, because there's that question of, well, you know, if women get the right to vote, will Catholic women vote? Will Protestant women vote? And how would that help shape or reshape the dynamics, right? Um, whereas for, again, if you're looking at media coverage, you'll start to see comments like, well, we already have, you know, Irish men voting. We really don't want Irish or Catholic, Catholic men voting. We really don't want. Catholic women voting too, that kind of thing. Um, and then in a later time period, again, in the 20th century, um, Catholics start to say, you know what, maybe we are interested in this suffrage question, um, but we wanna start to kind of look at it as Catholics, right? So what I mean by that is that you start to have um, interest from the suffrage movement in courting the Irish Catholic vote, but also interest from women in having a, kind of a, a separate Catholic organization or a, a Catholic movement. So you do see, uh, which really, I think a really interesting trend, but it happens late, like around 1914, 15. Um, you start to see a trend towards groups of Catholic women working for suffrage as Catholics, mm. kind of separately from, you know, the sort of the, the dominant suffrage movement. Finding the stories of working class women in the past can be hard because their experiences are often not the ones celebrated in the media or recorded in the history books. Dr. McCarthy told me she often had to search through archival records, personal papers, and old newspapers to find even a trace of the women she was researching. That was the case for Gertrude Kelly, an anarchist, a surgeon, and a suffragist. Gertrude Kelly is a fascinating figure. She um, was born in Ireland, but came fairly young, so largely grew up in the U.S. as part of a big Irish family. Um, and she and one of her brothers, whose name was John Kelly, um, were both anarchists in the 1880s. They embraced anarchism, and they wrote for these American anarchist publications so you can actually read what they wrote in the 1880s. But she was a surgeon um, and pretty well known in New York, well enough known they named a playground after her in the 1920s or 30s, the Gertrude Kelly playground. I think it's still there. Um, so she was very active in you know, reform um, in New York City. And she was single. She never married. And she really was devoted to her causes, of which there were many. But she, um, she, she shows up most time in terms of Irish nationalism. Um, but again, it's very hard to find. I've met several other historians who are also trying to find more on her. It's very hard to find much of anything on her because she doesn't leave any papers. So it's just mentions here and there. And then, you know, letters that she wrote um, to connections in Ireland or in the U.S. Um, but she really embraced, I mean, she was a pretty radical woman. Um, and, you know, it was her skill as a surgeon, you know, that allowed her to, you know, be um, uh, to, to be active in some of these other causes as well. In other words, she didn't marry. She didn't have children. Um, she was, you know, a respected professional, but also active in a lots of lots of causes. Leonore O'Reilly and Gertrude Kelly were friends, and, which is kind of a great story as well. But Leonore O'Reilly has a pretty different background. She... Her mother and father came from Ireland, 
and they had a little grocery store and then he died and her mother eventually lost the store which forced her to take a job uh, basically in a factory um, and so it was just mother and daughter living together and she you know as soon as Leonora was old enough she basically joined her mother in the factory and they worked in the garment trade um, and but but she was you know Winifred her mother Winifred O'Reilly you know brought kind of also brought her daughter into you know trade unionism um, and some of the more um, you know uh, more um, I don't want to say radical, I don't think that's the right word, but at least the, the sort of um, more um, cutting edge ideas of the labor movement in her time. Um, and, and when Leonora O'Reilly, older, um, you know, she was taking care of her mother, of Winifred, and Leonora O'Reilly actually died fairly young. I think she was around, she was in her 50s, I think. Um, and when she died, her mother was actually still alive. And so the women who were her friends from the Women's Trade Union League, you know, took care of her Leonora's mother. So there was, you know, it was that family connection that, you know, they stayed together their entire lives, but also that the Women's Trade Union League, that essentially became, you know, her home, um, mm -hmm. Leonora O'Reilly's home. Um, and, and, and she came to a lot of her activism really through, again, through the union movement, but embraced suffrage very early on um, and then came to Irish nationalism uh, sort of after that as well. So she was involved in all three. So that's why she shows up all the time. <laughs> Plus, she has papers. She left letters and diaries. She's one of the few that did. <laughs> Working class and middle class women came together to found the Women's Trade Union League in 1903. The organization promoted trade unionism among women workers and lobbied for labor protection legislation. It raised money for strikes, held protests, coordinated boycotts, and investigated conditions in sweatshops. Leonora O'Reilly worked as an organizer and recruiter for the New York City chapter of the group for more than a decade. As Dr. McCarthy explains, O'Reilly and other working class women recognized the organization's value but also grew frustrated by the influence of its wealthier members. Well, the Women's Trade Union League, I think, plays a really important role in this, even though there was certainly tension at times. The Women's Trade Union League, you know, as a vision was working class women and middle class, you know, and upper class women really working together. Right. But in, in many cases, you know, these sort of middle and upper class women, um, you know, took on leadership roles. And the working class women, um, you, you know, they were the organizers. They were the ones out there on the ground actually kind of doing the work. What that did, though, was help them get out of, you know, factory life. So that essentially, you know, Leonora O'Reilly stopped being a factory worker once she was able to support herself through her organizing and her activism. Um, and for many other women, this would, would be the case as well. Um, not just Irish women, but, but other women as well. Um, but as far as, you know, how they work together, there was certainly frustration sometimes, at least for O'Reilly. She quit more than once, the Women's Trade Union League, because she was just kind of like, you know, I've had enough. Um, and she would go back. But um, the suffrage movement, you know, was an important tie to that, because particularly in the early 20th century, the suffrage movement starts to reach out to working class women more. And so it makes sense it would be through either the Women's Trade Union League or some other organizations that they would be able to 
you know, start these dialogues, right? But um, especially around, you know, 1907, 1908, um, you start to get a lot more interest in working class women in the suffrage movement. Um, and, and what that then does is open up opportunities for women to become paid speakers for the suffrage movement. So, um, and I mentioned Margaret Foley already, she's kind of a really good example of that. There were, there were women who essentially kind of left behind, at least temporarily left behind their, you know, working class jobs to work for the suffrage movement. And they would, you know, travel when needed for different state campaigns. So, uh, again, one of the, I think the best example is an Irish woman by the name of Margaret Hinchey. She was first generation Irish. And she worked in the laundry till she was blacklisted for her union activities and then through the Women's Trade Union League um, and in close um, kind of partnership with Leonore O'Reilly, she ends up being a pretty popular suffrage speaker. And she travels to different states to give speeches and to organize um, for suffrage. But when suffrage is won in New York, she's not needed anymore. Leonore O'Reilly tries to help you know, raise money for her but she ends up back in the laundry um, when the suffrage movement is over. And Margaret Foley um, was, I want to say she was a hat trimmer. I can't remember what she did for work, but she, after the suffrage movement, really was scrambling around for a while looking for, you know, some kind of appointment with the Democratic Party or something. Because, again, these are working women, right? They have to work. So when the suffrage movement doesn't need them anymore, they have to find something else. So it's a it's a tricky relationship. It's part employer and part movement um, for, for a lot of women. Mm -hmm. And the Women's Trade Union, Union League is as well. I mean, it's their job, right? They, they work for the Women's Trade Union League. An important turning point for working class women and the suffrage movement came in 1911. On March 25th, a fire broke out at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company in the Greenwich Village neighborhood of Manhattan. 146 garment workers died in the fire. Most were young immigrant women. It was one of the worst industrial disasters in U.S. history and would eventually lead to the implementation of major workplace safety reforms. After the fire, labor activists like Leonora O'Reilly were more convinced than ever that having working-class women involved in the political process was essential for change. So Leonore O'Reilly was in New York. It's a moment where, it, you know, O'Reilly says in her diary, all right, we need a working-class suffrage movement, right? Not just a suffrage movement, but a working-class suffrage movement. It's, like a, it's a moment where it's not enough just to be involved in the suffrage movement. We need working-class women to work with working-class women as well. O'Reilly and other working-class women began to form wage earner suffrage leagues across the country. These groups would be run by and for the working class, whose lives were far removed from those of the wealthy elite women who headed most suffrage organizations. There was frustration, at least, again, on O'Reilly's part, and also Foley's part, I think, who we haven't talked as much about her, um, with um, some kind of, you know, paternalistic attitudes and not really understanding the needs of working class women. Um, uh, Margaret Foley, um, one of the interesting things that came out in her letters was that she was largely um, useful to the movement for her heckling and that, uh, you know, sort of activism. And um, 
there came a point where she was less active in the movement. And so she wrote to, you know, I don't know if it was the head or one of the officers with the Massachusetts Women's Suffrage Association. And she basically said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm a well-known Irish Catholic in Boston. Why am I not more, why am I not more needed in the movement? Or, you know, people are asking me why I'm not more visible in the movement. Um, and they basically wrote back to her and said, well, you've, you know, you've been really valuable, but the suffrage movement is in kind of a different phase right now. And, focusing on sort of quiet lobbying and things that we don't really think, mm. you know, would be your best, you know, area, essentially. So, again, I think the subtext of that was, okay, we like when, when you're loud and you go out and, you know, you heckle and you, you know, do these public, um, you know, speeches and demonstrations, but for the quiet lobbying, we're going to send somebody else. Mm. Um, and so for Foley, again, as I said, since that was a largely how she was supporting herself, you know, she needed to work and she wasn't sort of seen as being useful in that way. And and, and for, for Margaret Hinchy, I think, you know, the same thing happens. So for some of these women, I think they were useful until they weren't useful anymore. Um, and whereas the Women's Trade Union League would continue to be a home for some women, for women who were specifically sort of, you know, it, within the suffrage organizations, you know, I think it's more complicated. Margaret Hinchy and Margaret Foley spent years speaking out in favor of women's voting rights. Their efforts targeted union members and working class immigrants, groups that the mainstream suffrage movement often ignored. Hinchy and Foley made their mark on the fight for ballot access, but in the end, neither found a permanent home in activism. They didn't come for money, and unlike many wealthier suffrage advocates, needed a regular paycheck to survive, something that proved hard to come by despite their commitment to labor rights and women's equality. The 19th Amendment barred states from denying the vote based on sex, but for many women, including the working-class Irish-Americans studied by Dr. McCarthy, Full and lasting participation in the political process remained an elusive goal. In our next episode, we'll meet another group of women whose activism had roots in the labor movement. Dr. Josue Estrada will tell us about the struggle for voting rights in Washington state in the decades after World War II. Mexican-American women living and working in rural Yakima County, east of the Cascade Mountains, faced numerous barriers in their attempts to cast a ballot, including literacy tests and English-only elections. Despite these obstacles, though, they were determined to assert their right to vote. Ballot Blocked is produced and hosted by me, Eleanor Mahoney. Dr. Sylvia Hollis conducted research and interviews and helped plan this podcast. Drew Himmelstein is our producer and editor. Our music is by Poddington Bear. This project was made possible through the National Park Service, in part by a grant from the National Park Foundation and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. I'm Rick Smith. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1933. This was the day that Franklin Roosevelt named Frances Perkins Secretary of Labor. Secretary Perkins was the first woman to hold a cabinet position in the United States government. Perkins brought to her position years of experience advocating for working people. 
Born in Boston, Perkins attended Mount Holyoke College. She moved to Illinois to become a school teacher. She began spending time at the renowned Hull House Settlement House. At Hull House, Perkins encountered some of the leading fighters for women's rights and workers' safety, while learning from many of the leading labor reformers of her day. From Illinois, Perkins returned east to study economics and sociology, earning her master's degree from Columbia University in New York City. Soon, Perkins became the head of the National Consumers League. While in New York, Perkins witnessed firsthand the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire tragedy. She watched as 146 young girls and women jumped to their deaths to escape the deadly flames because the doors of the factory were chained shut. The experience profoundly affected Perkins. She would later say the New Deal began on March 25, 1911, the day the Triangle factory burned. She spent the rest of her career working to ensure the conditions that led to the Triangle fire would not be repeated. Perkins played a key role in crafting many parts of Roosevelt's New Deal legislation, including the passage of the Social Security Act. She also worked to pass the National Labor Relations Act, which allowed millions of workers to earn collective bargaining rights for the first time. During her 12 years as Labor Secretary, Perkins forged new ground for the role of women in government as a staunch ally for working people. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Now you have heard of women's rights and how we've tried to reach new heights if we're all created equal. That's us too. But you will probably not recall that it's not been too long at all since we even had the right to cast a vote. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we hope that you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks find the show. The Radicalism of Irish American Women came to us from the Ballot Blocked podcast, which is produced and hosted by Dr. Eleanor Mahoney. Dr. Sylvia Hollis conducted research and interviews and helps plan this podcast. Drew Himmelstein is the producer and editor. Music is by Poddington Bear. This project was made possible through the National Park Service in part through a grant from the National Park Foundation and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pauzik, and Alan Weirdock. For Labor History Today, this has been Mel Smith. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time. They carried signs and marched in lines until it long last law was passed. Oh, we were suffering until suffering. Not a woman here could vote no matter what age. Then the 19th Amendment struck down that restrictive rule. Oh, yeah.